If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, follow, and download wherever you listen. This podcast contains language that some listeners might find offensive. It was April 3rd, 1994, a snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction at the D&W convenience store in Mexico where she worked and then disappeared. Well, the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? They said they grabbed her from behind the counter and dragged her out the door and threw her in the back of Michael Moore's van. I didn't know Michael Moore had a white van. Well, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They didn't send the van. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? He laid down in two areas, which was a sign, it's an indication that there were human remains. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. If they would have put that van on my trailer and Heidi would have been in that van, that's where it would have went, right to the shredder. I've been in this from day one, is, you know, there's nothing else I can tell you. This is the story of Heidi Allen, the story of a small-town kidnapping where corruption got in the way of justice. The truth is finally coming out. In the last episode, we pieced together the newly discovered evidence and a theory began to develop. We heard both Roger Breckenridge and Richard Murtaugh on the stand deny any involvement in Heidi Allen's kidnapping. District Attorney Greg Oakes took Breckenridge's word for it, yet he decided that the handful of people who came forward corroborating each other with their individual statements about Breckenridge boasting did not have credible information. The last of the new suspects to testify was Michael Bohr. Here's reporter Alex Dunbar. He was just so odd. He, I remember this. Uh, he came in with this briefcase, and Lisa Peoples was asking, you know, you know, trying to find out, like, what, what's in this briefcase? Like, what are you bringing with you to a appeal hearing on a kidnapping case? Um, you know, and he didn't want to say, and you know, they, you know, they they couldn't make him open it. Bringing an object on the stand is not normal behavior for a witness. Still, Bohr felt that this briefcase was important enough to carry with him for his testimony. But why? The prosecution and Judge King quickly decided that whatever was in that briefcase was not relevant to the case, and thus protected Bohr from showing the court. But the question remains, what was in there, and why would he bring it in the courtroom? This is Peebles for the People, and I'm... Alex Peebles. I don't know what the world's been missing, but I think we need a miracle. I'm tired of being held down. And I'm tired of watching these people die. As you probably recall, we spent time digging into Michael Bohr's background in episode 5. We heard from Catherine Schmidt, a survivor of Bohr's 1981 kidnapping. Bohr was convicted of unlawful imprisonment after following Schmidt to her apartment complex one night and violently grabbing her by the throat. Meanwhile, his brother John Bohr 
was waiting in the driver's seat, ready to hit the gas as soon as Michael got her in the car. Schmidt was able to escape Bohr's grasp before the brothers sped off into the night. Here's Schmidt remembering that horrific night. And the next thing, there was a man behind me saying, excuse me, can you help me find someone? And the next thing, he had me in a chokehold with his other hand over my mouth, dragging me backwards. Schmidt was not the only victim of Bohr's. There was also a nurse who treated Bohr at the Craig House Rehabilitation Center. She was attacked and left unconscious in a pool of her own blood in Bohr's duplex. One of the last things she remembers from that night was Michael Bohr standing in the doorway asking where her friend was. And I was in the bed, it was dark, and all I saw was a silhouette of him, and it looked like he had like a briefcase in his hand. And he said, um, well, where's your friend? And I said, um, she's not coming. Um, he said, um, that's too bad because I wanted to right. F her too. Bohr very clearly has a dark history of violence towards women. But at the start of the hearing, the Oswego County Sheriff's and the District Attorney's Office had no clue about his violent past. However, the Sheriff's and DA were aware of several people that came forward to say that they heard Bohr admit to or hint at involvement in Heidi's kidnapping. One of those people was Tyler Hayes. He called police in 2000 after Bohr broke down in tears in front of him at the Liberty Bell Tavern. Hayes said Bohr admitted he knew what happened to Heidi and that the Thibodeaux were innocent. Hayes testified at the hearing in 2015 about his run-in with Bohr. During his testimony, Oakes tried to cast doubt on the idea that Hayes could remember what Bohr said 14 years earlier. An issue which Hayes had no problem addressing on the stand. Oakes, so it's been 14 years. Would you say that your memory may have faded a little bit over 14 years? might not recall things as well as you did 14 years ago? Hayes, no, but I mean, in this case, when somebody makes admissions to a murder, it's not like, oh, I forgot where I put my car keys. Hayes had even called the sheriffs that night in 2000 to report what Bohr said to him. Although the sheriffs never followed up on that lead, handwritten notes documenting what Hayes said were taken. So for Oakes to question Hayes about his memory from that night made no sense. And the information Hayes offered wasn't turned over to the defense until he came forward to the defense 14 years after his run-in with Bohr. This was not the only time Bohr's name came up in relation to the kidnapping. There was also the time he ran up and down a road in Mexico, New York, screaming that he knew what happened to Heidi, an outburst which earned him a visit from investigators in 2013. You need to explain that to me. Why are you running up down the road? Say, call Bobby Wheeler. I know about Heidi Allen. Call Bobby Wheeler. Call FBI. That's what I'm looking for. You need to explain to me why you were there doing that. I was proving to somebody, and I'm trying to remember who it was. The, the, I can't remember what led me to it. I was, I was absorbed in the scanner, 
back then. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I was bringing in the all police the scanner. You mean mm -hmm. scanning stuff? Uh, like I said, I, I really abused my my brain back then, stress-wise. Stress mm -hmm. I was recovering from uh, acute anxiety and uh, okay. from working at IBM. And uh, it's really. I mean, there's so many people involved. Bohr was also questioned by the FBI in 1994 regarding the kidnapping. And during the interview, he spewed out his own theories about what happened to Heidi. Bohr also took it upon himself to begin investigating Heidi's kidnapping almost immediately following her disappearance. You might also recall the FBI profiler Clint Van Zant putting together a profile of the kidnapper. The person who committed this is somebody who was really interested. I mean, the community was interested in the case, but this is more interest. Obsessed. Could not let it go. This is somebody who will be saving newspaper articles. According to Van Zant's profile, the kidnapper would also likely have a past of prior kidnappings. Again, Bohr started his independent and self-proclaimed investigation immediately after Heidi was kidnapped. He ran in the street claiming he knew what happened to her and broke down crying over that fact in a bar. He also had a box filled with documents and newspaper clippings related to the case that he turned over to investigators in 2013. He clearly seems to fit some of Van Zandt's criteria. I bring all of this up for a reason. Even without knowledge of Bohr's criminal history, it seems he knew more about Heidi's kidnapping than he was letting on, and at the very least, seemed worth looking into. But the sheriff's office and the DA thought otherwise, and chose not to investigate this potential suspect any further. Gary's attorney, Lisa Peebles, explicitly asked the prosecution to look into Bohr's background, given what they knew about him at the time. Judge King denied that request. Quote, Your office may investigate whether Michael Bohr has a daughter and any related issues at your expense. The district attorney's office is not obligated to investigate further. End quote. Here's Lisa Peebles. I listened to the recording of Michael Bohr and investigator Petrosky. Michael Bohr was talking about reasons why he would not or could not have been the person who was involved in the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. He mentioned that he had two daughters the same age. He mentioned the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And I wondered whether they had done any investigation as to whether or not he actually had any daughters. Uh, since he offered up that as an excuse. <clears throat> so I pressed the district attorney's office to investigate Michael Bohr's background to find out whether he even had daughters. And when I did that, um, I argued to the court that I had requested that they investigate his background. And when I, I did that, the court issued a, a letter decision 
stating that uh, the district attorney's office was under no obligation to investigate Michael Bohr's background any further. If we wanted to find out about Michael Bohr, we could investigate at our own expense whether he had a daughter and anything else that we wanted to regarding his background. When it was time for Bohr to testify at the hearing, he was questioned by Lisa Peebles, and Chief Assistant District Attorney Mark Moody handled the cross-examination. Bohr believed this was a chance for him to set the record straight. This is Bohr talking to John O'Brien. I'm staying put. My life is on hold until this thing is is cleared up. Yeah. Are you going to testify? I, I'm, I'm not running because I'm innocent. Are you, are, are you going to testify? I'm only guilty of being, I think, I'm very close to having the right answers as to who did it. Okay. And that's why I, I've been up against all this shit ever since. So you're, you said you're guilty of being too uh, too much too aggressive in investigating it. Is that what you mean? No, I think I'm too close to the truth. Okay. And are you are you going to testify? Has anyone subpoenaed you or no. talked or interviewed you or anything like that? No, no one's. No you're, one. you're the only one, and, and Lisa Prevels. Okay. Yep. All right. No sheriffs. And, and, and uh, so help me, you, you misquote me. I, I, I'll come after you. But he didn't know that Lisa Peebles had started to uncover his violent past. Bohr declined to consent to be recorded on the stand, and his testimony was yet another example of one side trying to find answers, while the other side was doing its best to block key questions about Heidi's kidnapping. Bohr had a briefcase with him, so he must have thought whatever was in it was important. Otherwise, why bring it to the stand with him? Lisa Peebles, Mr. Bohr, what was in the briefcase that you brought into court today? What's in the briefcase? Moody, objection judge, relevance. Lisa Peebles, I think the judge wants to know, and I'd like to know. Judge King, no, I don't want to know. I just don't want it on the witness stand. I'll sustain the objection. Lisa Peebles. Well, does it have anything to do with the Heidi Allen case? Moody. Judge. Judge King. If you want to, did you issue a subpoena Dukas take him for his documents? Lisa Peebles. No, I didn't, Judge. But he brought them here in court. Judge King. Sustained then. Why would Judge King not want to know what was in that briefcase? Whatever it was inside the briefcase was likely relevant enough for Bohr to bring it with him. In an interview with John O'Brien before the hearing, Bohr told him about a briefcase he had that was stolen. Alright, the guy that knows for a fact who stole my briefcase, and, and that briefcase was a a lot more organized than what I gave the sheriffs, and it was a lot more complete. Right. There were statements in there. I offer this because it shows that Bohr kept documents about Heidi's kidnapping in a briefcase. Let's take a quick break. By now, you already know how obsessed I am with the game Best Fiends. It's hands down my favorite game to play after a long day. Not only am I winding down when I play it, 
but it keeps my mind engaged as I try to solve puzzles and beat levels. The coolest part though, is exploring all of the different worlds within the game. I think my favorite world to explore is the ominous ocean. Man, what a fun challenge. I find myself playing whenever I get a minute of downtime, and I can play anywhere. I don't need Wi-Fi or any bandwidth to play. Best Fiends also allows me and my family to stay competitive with each other from a distance. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This episode of Peebles for the People is sponsored by Himalaya Ashwagandha. 2020 has been a stressful year for me, and I've been searching for something to help me manage my stress. Finally, I can say that I have found that something in Himalaya Ashwagandha. Stress, anxiety, worry, pressures, at home, at work, kids, coworkers. There's so much that causes stress and anxiety these days. We're all just looking for that natural way to take the edge off and protect our mind and body against it. Himalaya Ashwagandha helps me navigate through my daily stresses and anxiety. Now, what is Ashwagandha? The simple answer is Ashwagandha is an herb. In ancient times, Ashwagandha was considered the king of Ayurvedic herbs, and it was used for a wide variety of conditions. In functional medicine today, we harness the power of ashwagandha primarily to help our bodies adapt to the stress of modern day life so we can feel calm and balanced. Himalaya ashwagandha is organic, non-GMO, contains no binders or fillers, and is clinically validated for safety and efficacy. Stress less and find calm with Himalaya ashwagandha. The best part? Get 20% off your first purchase on Amazon with discount code PEEBLES20. That's P-E-E-B-L-E-S-2-0. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode's sponsorship with Himalaya. Lisa Peebles moved on to ask Bohr about his life and where he was from, a line of questioning that resulted in a legal argument with Moody and King. I want to remind you, at this point, all Lisa Peebles knew was that Bohr was convicted of unlawful imprisonment. To clarify, she didn't know the details of what Bohr had done yet, only that he had been convicted of that charge. Lisa Peoples, No, I'm asking him questions about his background, which I'm entitled to do, despite the fact... Moody, I want the relevance of what his nationality is. Judge King, What's the relevance of whether he's a dual citizen or not a dual citizen? Lisa Peebles, he may not be a U.S. citizen, and that's what I'm questioning him about. Judge King, why is that relevant? Lisa Peebles, because he has a felony conviction out of Wisconsin. Judge King, why is that relevant to what he may or may not know about Heidi Allen? Lisa Peebles, because, Your Honor... It was for unlawful imprisonment of a woman. Moody, so now we're impeaching our own witness again. 
Judge King, I'm going to sustain the objection. I don't see whether he's a dual citizen or not is relevant. Lisa Peebles, do you have a history of violence against women? Moody, objection, Judge. Relevance. Judge King, Miss Peebles, he's your witness. Lisa Peebles, I'm asking him if he did. I'm not impeaching him. He has an opportunity to say yes or no. How am I impeaching him? Judge King, answer the question, Mr. Bohr. Can you repeat the question? Lisa Peebles, do you have a history of violence against women? Moody, objection, foundation. Can we have a time frame? Can we have anything? Judge King, I'll go with time frame. Do you have a time frame, Miss Peebles? Lisa Peebles, yeah, just for the record, I don't have to make my witness credible, wonderful person because I call them. Judge King, I'm not denying that, Miss Peebles, but you cannot attack your own witness the minute he sits down on the witness stand. Lisa Peebles, I'm not attacking him. Judge King, you're backdooring the attack, Miss Peebles. Answer the question when, or give a time frame for Mr. Bohr. Lisa Peebles, Mr. Bohr, between 1981 and 1996, do you have a history of violence against women? Bohr, I don't consider it as violence. Lisa Peebles, well, what do you mean by that? Bohr, I didn't hit any woman. That legal wrangling sums up how difficult it was for Lisa Peebles to get any answers out of Bohr. It was pretty clear that King was simply waiting for the prosecution to object with a cause that would allow him to sustain the objection and protect Bohr from answering questions. I'm going to take a moment to break this down more clearly for you. This was an evidentiary hearing to decide whether or not Gary Thibodeau would have been convicted in 1994 had they known what we know now. What that means is, the defense had the burden to prove that had this newly discovered evidence been known about when Gary was originally on trial, that it would have changed the outcome. But how was the defense supposed to do that if the prosecutors and judge wouldn't let them ask basic questions to establish their case. How was Bohr's past irrelevant to the case? At that point, they knew he had a prior felony conviction of unlawful imprisonment. Not even Lisa Peebles knew the full extent of Bohr's past, and it was clear that they weren't going to let her dig it up while questioning him. So when we did a background... Um search on Michael Bohr, I noticed that his social security number had been issued from Wisconsin. And I asked my investigator to run a criminal history check in Wisconsin. That's when we discovered that there were two prior convictions in Wisconsin in the 80s, early 80s, one for unlawful imprisonment and the other one for disorderly conduct. We discovered that information prior to the start of the hearing but we weren't able to get the actual reports. The police department at the time stated that they had just, they no longer had those reports. And when my investigator, Dick Hallman, reached out to the court, they were confused and couldn't locate the records. So when we entered the hearing, I didn't know what the underlying facts were 
in connection with those offenses, but I thought I would ask Michael Bohr about those when the hearing started. But when I attempted to ask him questions about his background, the district attorney objected, the court sustained, and I wasn't able to get into that uh, background information. The only thing I was allowed to ask Michael Bohr at the hearing was whether he had any violent history toward women during that time period, to which he answered no. In 2016, Bohr's friends secretly recorded a conversation with him. Bohr says his past convictions were blown out of proportion. Mike, seriously? I don't care. What? Seriously, your fucking past history is not fucking, you know, it's not good. Dude, it was a drunken disorder that went out of hand, and they're exaggerating the fuck out of it. So Drunken disorderly? That went out of hand, yeah. I thought you said it was a uh, mistaken. Uh, I put my hand over her mouth and became false imprisonment. That's all it was. Bohr's past seemed pertinent, considering he was being questioned about a kidnapping for which he had become a suspect. But Judge King disagreed. King, what is relevant about his history? He's not on trial right now. The question is, what does he... Or does he not know about the Heidi Allen case? Lisa Peebles, just so I'm clear, so I know what I'm allowed to question my own witness on, is the court restricting me to simply asking him only about the Heidi Allen case and nothing more? I want it clear. King, are you trying to prosecute your own witness, Miss Peebles? Lisa Peebles, am I trying to prosecute them? King, yes. Lisa Peebles, well, if I had the authority to, I would, but no. King, it sounds like you're putting him on trial, Miss Peebles. Lisa Peebles, Judge, I'm trying... King, the relevant issue to this case is what he may or may not have said or what is or not in his knowledge regarding Heidi Allen. How is whether or not he was or was not violent toward women in a time frame of 15 years relevant to what he knows about Heidi Allen? Lisa Peebles. Well, Your Honor, I think it's obvious that the theory of the government is that she was abducted and kidnapped and murdered. So that would be a violent act. And I'm trying to establish some background on Mr. Bohr. King. I'm going to deny it. Lisa Peebles. Okay, so... King, I'm going to sustain the objection. Excuse me. Although Lisa Peebles was shut down when trying to uncover Bohr's past while he was under oath, she was able to ask about Bohr's relationship with Heidi. By that I mean, Bohr knew Heidi because he frequented the D&W store. Bohr, I was aware of who she was. She made my sandwiches. Lisa Peebles, okay, fair enough. How often would you go in there to get sandwiches? Bohr, probably every day sometimes, not necessarily because she was there. Here's Lisa Peebles again. Michael Bohr was somebody who went to the DNW every day. He said that Heidi Allen made him BLT sandwiches and that she was a nice girl. And he, again, he wrote about, you know, seeing her on a regular basis and living right down the street from the DNW. Then, the line of questioning turned to Bohr's work. He owned a computer repair shop called MedSpars that he opened after Heidi went missing. Bohr said on the stand that he only ever hired women. 
One of them, Danielle Babcock, testified at the hearing recounting chilling moments of Boar threatening her. Um, he would tell us several times that he would do us like he did Heidi. Do you recall the time period in which he was making these comments to you? Uh, what do you mean time period? Like, the, when you, only when you were working at Ben Sparks? Yes. Was anyone else present when he made those comments to you? Um, Alex McNabb and Tanya Babcock. Did you tell anyone about the comments regarding Heidi, Heidi Allen that was reported to you? My mom. What did you tell your mom? I just told her that he would always threaten us like he, you know, to do us that he did Heidi. What made you quit your employment in That exactly. Here's Greg Oaks cross-examining Babcock. How long did you work for Bedstar? Um, not even a year. Was it closer? Is it three months, nine months? Do you have a ballpark estimate? I'd say about six to nine months. Did he ever talk to you about Heidi Allen or talk in the shop that you heard about Heidi Allen? Um, just that he would threaten us to do us as he did Heidi. He never, he never told you that he directly killed Heidi Allen, did he? He said verbatim, I'll do you as I did Heidi. But what did, what did you take from the vague threat? Um, I, did I think that he would honestly, you know, do anything to me? No, I didn't. But did it bother me to the point where I would quit my job? Yes, it did. Okay. But you didn't actually think he was going to cause harm to you? I, to me personally, no. Um, I knew that he knew my entire family. Whether Babcock felt truly threatened by Bohr's comments did not matter. What Babcock represented was yet another person to come forward with accounts of Bohr admitting he was involved in Heidi's kidnapping. He denies ever having said that to Babcock. All this shit about me is a fucking lie. Everything? Damn right. You guys are working on some pretty big stuff over there, right? Like a new language. I never said that shit. Well, not me specifically. I work on the industrial side, so I build the world's changing machines. I get it. Daniel Babcock. But why would she lie? What did she have to gain by making that up? In the middle of his testimony, Lisa Peebles began questioning Bohr about his investigation into Heidi's kidnapping. A line of questioning that resulted in Bohr having an emotional breakdown on the stand. Reporter Alex Dunbar remembers Bohr's bizarre emotional episode. He broke down. He essentially had an emotional breakdown on the stand. He he did not... I, I think there was an a, a open acknowledgement that he did not seem as all put together. You know, he really... I don't know even know how to describe it in a way. He really felt like he was not in an okay place as he was testifying on this. And it, you know, as as things, you know, more information came out during the hearing that raised a lot more questions about, you know, sort of this very strange demeanor he had. He was he was choking up and and was having trouble answering questions and, and seems to be I, I guess like I, I'm, I'm 
crying, I guess. He was he was really getting choked up and was getting too emotional to answer questions. I do specifically remember the judge acknowledging that Michael Bohr was, you know, struggling and, and was seemed in, in a highly emotional state. And the judge sort of saying, we're going to let this witness, you know, we're, we're going to stop testimony for this you know, witness to compose himself. And I just, I remember thinking like that, that's pretty unusual. I've, I've sat through many trials. I've heard some really emotional testimony. I, I don't really remember a case where a judge would be asking a witness, in, you know, in an appeal hearing to, you know, give a witness time to compose themselves it was it was it was quite odd. It's also worth noting what he was being asked about didn't seem like it should be eliciting that level of emotional response. Uh, you know he, uh, you know he, he wasn't related to Heidi Allen. He he wasn't. Uh, you know he didn't. Uh, there there wasn't like a familial connection. There, there weren't a lot of the reasons where you might kind of say it's understandable why this witness you know, may need time to compose themselves. He was describing himself just as, I mean, by his description, he was someone who ran an independent investigation into her case. It was, it really kind of, it was hard to understand why he was breaking down on the stand. Was Bohr about to crack? Was this line of questioning going to get Bohr to make a confession? Lisa Peebles thought so. Well, the most alarming part of his testimony was when he began to sob when he was on the stand and how Mark Moody, the first assistant, jumped in and objected when I asked Michael Bohr why he was getting so emotional about his testimony. And it was during a point in, in my questioning where I was asking him how many times he thought about Heidi when he drove by that sign, where's Heidi? And the court actually intervened, sustained the objection on what basis I still have no idea, but allowed Michael Bohr to have a break to kind of compose himself and then take the stand after, you know, he had an opportunity to gather himself. So... I still don't understand the basis for the objection or the basis for the uh, or the ruling um, sustaining Mark Moody's objection. We felt like we had Michael Bohr on the verge of coughing up a confession because he was getting so emotional. I, here you have a guy in his late 50s who had no real relationship with Heidi Allen breaking down because he drove by the sign every day. Somebody who had repeatedly told other people that he knew what happened to Heidi and that the Thibodeaux weren't involved. So that, to me, uh, and, and also the fact that he coughed up this notion that uh, Heidi was disposed of at Crosby Hill, the salvage yard. Uh, that was something that he told Petrosky when he said, you know, mean, where's her body? So, you know, certainly there was something going on with Michael Bohr, and he had a guilty conscience about it, and I feel like we had him on the verge of confessing. During an interview with O'Brien, Bohr talked about the toll a guilty conscience takes on a person. 
I mean, but guilty conscience is a very powerful thing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's very unpredictable how a person deals with the stress of, of guilt. Yeah. Um, a lot of people end up in the nut house. Yeah. Over guilt. You know, their depression is, is uh, a byproduct of guilt. Here's exactly how Bohr's breakdown played out. It's important to know that the sign that's referred to in this conversation says, Where's Heidi? King, stop, Mr. Bohr. Do you need time to compose yourself, sir? Do you need five minutes? Bohr, no. King, take some time. Bohr, and I told him it's because of that damn sign. Lisa Peebles, that sign really bothered you, didn't it? Bohr, I always had to answer it. I don't know, but I'll find out. It's just, I'm a researcher from IBM. They ask me a question that I don't know, but I'll find out. It's just the way I, my brain works. Lisa Peebles, you're getting pretty emotional. Why are you so upset? Moody, objection, Judge. King, excuse me? Moody, the gentleman's emotional. Do we have to rehash why? King, I'm going to sustain it. Do you need time, sir? Before I go any further, you should know that there was no legal reason for that objection. A witness getting emotional is not a legal reason to object, let alone sustain an objection. Why was Bohr getting emotional on the stand? Why did he feel so attached to this case? And why wouldn't Judge King and Mark Moody let Lisa Peebles pursue that line of questioning in order to find out. In 2016, Bohr's friends asked him why he began investigating the case, a question that Bohr couldn't answer. What, what led you to be the investigator, or like an investigator in your hiding thing? What was, oh, I can't answer that. What drove you to want answer to that question without a lawyer? Okay. Damn right. Mike, what the fuck, dude? After months of searching, I was able to get a hold of Michael Bohr to ask him about Heidi's kidnapping for myself. A record search puts him in Alabama, but his phone number indicates he may be in Ohio. To be honest, when I called him, I didn't know what to expect. After all, my mother openly accused him of Heidi's kidnapping and murder. Our conversation was brief. You had some theories about what happened to Heidi, and I uh, just wanted to give you a call and see if I could talk to you about it. No, I, I, I don't want to talk about it at all. It's, um, the whole thing's turned into a total clusterfuck. So, what do you think happened to her? I'll uh, keep my opinions to myself. Thank you. Setting aside Bohr's horrific criminal history, his intense interest in Heidi's kidnapping just didn't add up. But Judge King seemed to see the good in Bohr characterizing him as simply a gentleman with a concern. 
This excerpt of the transcript is a legal argument after Lisa Peebles tried moving Bohr's handwritten notes about his investigation into evidence. Lisa Peebles. All right, at this time, Your Honor, I'd like to offer into evidence exhibit... What's the number on there? King, 53. Lisa Peebles, 53. Moody. For what purpose? I guess I object to the relevance. Lisa Peebles. He just explained they were handwritten notes that he kept about the Heidi Allen case. I think it's relevant. King. How? Lisa Peebles. How? King. He's not an investigator. He's a gentleman who has a concern. Lisa Peebles. Judge. I think it's relevant. I'm offering it and... King. How? Lisa Peebles. Because he has notes in there from a psychic about details surrounding Heidi Allen and her disappearance. King. From his own testimony, that's a self-proclaimed psychic. Lisa Peebles. He wrote those notes. I want to ask him why. How is that not relevant? It goes to the heart of the matter. King. It does? Lisa Peebles. Yes. King. How? Lisa Peebles. How? We're here because we're accusing them of being involved in Heidi Allen. King. You are. Nobody else is. Lisa Peebles. Well, Judge, he's here. I called him as a witness. I'm asking him questions. He's admitting it. King. Admitting what? That he wrote the notes? Lisa Peebles. Yes. King. I'm sustaining it. It's not relevant. Lisa Peebles. Your Honor. We're contending that the notes explain exactly what happened with Heidi Allen, and we think it's relevant and we're moving it into evidence. King, you're asking to move it into evidence. Lisa Peebles, yes. Moody, objection. Now it's hearsay. Now they're offering it exactly for the truth of the matter asserted. King, sustained. Earlier, we heard Judge King restrict Lisa Peebles to questions related to Bohr's knowledge about Heidi's kidnapping. But here, when she attempted to present direct evidence of his beliefs and statements on the matter in handwritten notes, she was denied yet again. We discussed Bohr's notes in Episode 5. In those notes, he wrote, quote, Heidi hid a bracelet behind the seat of the vehicle, real good, end quote. For the record, Heidi's bracelet somehow ended up in her cousin's mailbox years after the kidnapping. In his handwritten notes, Bohr also included a theory of what happened, a theory which he claimed a psychic told him. Quote, she was beaten with a pipe and stabbed over and over again, but she was still alive. She said she was burned. She also said Heidi hid something wherever she was held and everybody in her family would know it was hers. End quote. Maybe Bohr did get all of this information from a psychic. Or maybe he was drawing from memory. And maybe, after all of these years, his guilty conscience was catching up to him. It's, it's very unpredictable how a person deals with the stress of, of guilt. Again, it's helpful to take a step back and consider that this was an evidentiary hearing, so all the defense needed to prove 
was that the information presented in this hearing could have changed the verdict if it had been discovered back when Gary was originally on trial in 1994. It's also important to remember that the only thing anyone, even the defense, knew about Bohr's past up to this point was that he had multiple criminal convictions. But consider this. Consider that witnesses came forward with accounts of Bohr's admissions and that the FBI profile created stated whoever was responsible would be obsessed with the case, would collect newspaper clippings, and call in false leads about the case. Bohr had all the makings of a suspect in the kidnapping, and yet his own notes and thoughts on the case were not important enough to admit as evidence. It was difficult to follow the judge's logic. While King agreed that Bohr's notes should not be admitted, when prosecutors sought to admit someone else's notes into evidence, King had no problem with it. In an effort to prove that Jen Westcott and her family did not live on Rice Road in 1994, Oakes moved handwritten notes from Darcy Purdy into evidence. Purdy claimed she was living at the address where Westcott's family was residing when Heidi went missing. But according to the lease, Purdy only lived there for five months in 1993. Yet Oakes tried proving otherwise. Oaks, that's fine, Your Honor. I would offer the three exhibits then at this time. Exhibit DDDD. Lisa Peebles, her handwritten notes? Well, I'll allow those in evidence if he agrees to allow Mr. Bohr's handwritten notes into evidence that were in the box. King, hold it. We're talking about DDDD, that one you're objecting to? Lisa Peebles, I won't object to any of those handwritten notes in all of her diaries if he agrees to allow the handwritten notes from Mr. Bohr. Otherwise, I have the same objection that the prosecutor has. King, let's deal with the exhibits. Are you trying to move them all, Mr. Oakes? Oakes, take them one at a time. King, which one are you offering first? Oakes, first I would offer E-E-E-E. The Santa's edition, 1995 catalog, this witness testified she received at that address. Lisa Peebles, I object to the relevance. I won't, I won't concede. Judge, I don't see how it's relevant. She testified about receiving a piece of mail where she was residing, so I object. Oakes was trying to use a magazine subscription to prove that Jen Westcott never lived on Rice Road in 1994. To argue that Bohr's investigation notes were irrelevant and inadmissible, but that this stray piece of mail was somehow relevant enough to admit, was disingenuous at best. And for the record, the landlord, Deb Vecchio, testified under oath that Westcott lived there at the time of the kidnapping, and that Vecchio had met Roger Breckenridge because he was always hanging around there with Westcott. Westcott also sent a Facebook message to Carl Robinson, telling him not to tell anyone she ever lived on Rice Road. It was very well established that Westcott lived on Rice Road in 1994 at the time of the kidnapping. 
even Roger Breckenridge offered that information to John O'Brien. Did Jennifer ever live on the trailer in Weiser? Yeah, Jennifer Martin. Okay. After did, I split up with her, I think she did. I think oh, she, after. But what about before? No, I never lived there. Before. No, no. But did she live there on Rice Road in that trailer? Um, I'm pretty sure that she lived there. Okay. The hearing was a three-month-long double standard. The prosecution and King blocked the defense at almost every turn. It was clear that no matter what the defense uncovered, the prosecution was dead set on keeping Gary in prison. But when the full truth of Bohr's background finally did come out, even Oakes couldn't deny that Bohr was more than just a concerned citizen. In a conference call between Oakes, Lisa Peebles, Randy Bianco, and Judge King, Oakes said learning about Bohr's violent past put a pit in his stomach. Here's somebody who has a history of savagely offending women, and we know at least three known victims besides Heidi. Despite his extremely verbose testimony at the hearing, the former prosecutor Donald Dodd couldn't deny that had they known about Bohr's violent history in 1994, things may have turned out differently. Well, I'm asking if you knew that Michael Bohr had been previously convicted of abducting a 21-year-old female by grabbing her from behind and pushing her in a car while hitting her with another man in the car. Would that have been significant to you? Associated within the construct of the investigation of the abduction of Heidi Allen? Yes. Absolutely. To the extent that uh, any suspect, any individual, as part of the investigation, if there were facts that would be reliably developed, establishing that a person may have been involved in or a witness to the abduction of Heidi Allen, in the first instance, the Sheriff's Department most certainly would have uh, investigated that. I'm not asking about that. Heidi Allen. If you knew he had a previous abduction, would that have been significant to you? Michael Gore abducting another female from As, the parking lot by choking her and dragging her into the car. Would that have been important to you? Within the construct of the abduction of Heidi Allen? Yes. Certainly to the extent that there was reliable information that an individual had previously participated in uh, imprisonment or abduction of an individual, that absolutely would be something that should be considered by uh, a prosecutor on the issue of whether or not there's some measure of relationship between the previous conduct of that person to the matter before the, that's presently presenting to the investigation. Would the uncovering of Bohr's criminal history be enough to grant Gary Thibodeau a new trial? Find out on the next episode of Peebles for the People. for the people fans if you like the show don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you listen 
And if you want to stay updated on new happenings as I uncover things, go over to Twitter and give me a follow at AlexPeebles93. That's where you can find information about new episodes coming out and where you'll see exactly what I've dug up in the process of creating each episode. And if you have any questions for me about the show, feel free to tweet at me and I'll do my best to get back at you.